Hey everyone, my name is Gabe Kennedy and welcome to the State of the Planet, a conversation series where we sit with thought leaders and innovators to discuss the state of the planet. Today we have Henry Rich, an entrepreneur since the age of 22 who's focused on the cross-section of building community, climate action, and food and beverage, aka hospitality. Henry is the owner of the Auburn Group, one of my favorite restaurant groups in the city. You may know from Rucola to Fredora or June Wine Bar, all of which have an environmental uh, component and responsibility built into their operations. So Henry, I'm so glad to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak. Thanks, Gabe. Always a pleasure to catch up. Always a pleasure. Um, so Henry, I mean, I know you personally and professionally, and one of the things that has continually astounded me outside of the fact that you have just incredible uh, hospitality uh, properties is your dedication to learning and continual learning. And so I know you're in the midst of sort of, 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 a, of a, I believe, master's program, but all of these are huge feats. And I'm curious, what was that moment in your life where you screamed Eureka and said, I want to, you know, go after sustainability? Um, I have to give credit to uh, Anthony Mient, uh, who started, started Zero Foodprint. Um, you know, prior to meeting Anthony, I, I was mostly just focused on doing things that would build community, revitalize a neighborhood, um, make somewhere that I want to go near where I live uh, um, or explore some other thing like, you know, natural wine um, like June. Uh, but it was actually with Meta where, where Anthony came in and, um, you know, dropped off a copy of Drawdown, which had just come out and said, you know, check it out. Uh, we're responsible for 24% of climate change um, in the food industry. And, uh, you know, from that moment forward, um, uh, I felt as uh, as a business owner, an entrepreneur working in food, um, I did have uh, an abnormal level of responsibility just just to cover the damage that our industry, you know, causes on a on a regular basis, and and try to compensate. And um, that was the first thing that we did was was making that restaurant carbon neutral, and then since there, we've just tried to figure out how we can, you know, possibly uh, make an impact um, on the industrial food system and, it, and its commensurate carbon footprint, which is high. It really is remarkable. Like when, you know, I'm reading, I'm reading Bill Gates' book right now and it's like, <laughs> there's so much information around our, our impact. And yet I think there's so much paralysis of how we actually move forward. And so I think you've really kind of put, things into motion in a way that is so admirable. I'd love to learn more about kind of, okay, 24% you said? Yeah, it's measured a lot of different ways. Um, and a lot of the emissions obviously come from, you know, cattle and things that people know about, but a lot of the emissions are caused by, you know, land use and deforestation and food waste. But 20 about a quarter of emissions is about right um i've heard as high as 26 percent uh obviously these are moving targets too and um there's a lot of you know a lot of good things happening with energy a lot of good things happening with transport 
Uh, but then when you look in areas like food and, uh, you know, construction, um, progress is a little bit, uh, a little bit more difficult to come by. So if we talk about food and want to get a little bit more granular in terms of kind of what's the state of the planet as it relates to food, what are, you know, what, what do you find to be the biggest pain points and, and therefore sort of greatest opportunity to, to move the needle forward? Yeah, greatest pain point um, is probably, uh, I don't know that anybody's ever asked a question in, in quite that way. Um, probably the fact that uh, uh, the combination of um, food subsidies for industrial agriculture uh, mixed with you know high income inequality, um, mixed with high healthcare costs equals it's it's very difficult to switch to a regenerative uh, agricultural system in this country because there's so many interests and there's so much downward pressure on prices. Um, this is an interesting thing that I've been learning about more recently, but actually um, as a percentage of disposable income, Americans spend the least out of uh, out of any kind of Western country. Um, on on food, and we have the highest income inequality and the highest healthcare costs. So there there's some uh, intractable issues having to do with um, the ways in which the industry is subsidized, with you know the fertilizers and um, all of the kind of inorganic methods that allow you to make a colossal number of calories, but it's not leaving the planet in a healthy shape. It's not leaving people. In healthy shape, and um, it's just ge generally not great for equity across the board. So, as a restaurateur and you know climate activist, what have you been able to put into practice to push against those those systems? Because truly, I think being healthy in America is a task. Like, yeah, for sure, it's, it's an uphill battle. It's not something you can take for granted. Um, yeah, so in terms of what, what we try to do is we try to pursue, um, you know, radical proof of concept uh, for some um, lofty sustainability goal like at Redora. Um, so uh, actually the person that introduced us, um, Lauren Singer, uh, introduced me to the chef, Doug McMaster, who owns uh, Silo. In England, and um, Doug is is well known for having a completely trash-free restaurant, and uh, we had the privilege of hosting his pop-up in New York a couple of years ago. Um, and then, uh, when we were kind of rebranding a restaurant, we decided to try out um, the trash-free wine bar, um, just so that people have kind of an option and can explore the conversation. Like it's very easy to visualize like, oh, you have a restaurant that literally doesn't have a trash. You don't have a trash pickup. What happens when, you know, you have all the, all the trash around you that you, that you normally have this bin following you around um, for your entire life and, and kind of engaging people. Um, because I think even if you want to be sustainable, there just aren't that many great options for you because, you know, America kind of runs on plastic and, 
So if you, if you wake up one day and you want to be as sustainable as possible, it'll, it'll be the worst day of your life because you're, you realize that's difficult to impossible. So just creating, um, you know, outlets for people that, that have this, you know, positive desire to build, you know, what I just call positive climate self-esteem where, where you've done something good for the planet. That's not impossible. And then from there you can develop, you know, uh, a relationship with your carbon footprint and climate change that you actually enjoy, that you have pride in, that you can talk to people about without feeling terrified or ashamed about being so confused uh, around the topic. So we, we try to create these just, you know, obviously one wine bar is not, not gonna solve the problem, but by showing that that's possible in New York, we can start conversations where people are feeling good about themselves and climate in, in like the same thought. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a remarkable mission. I think the opportunity to move the conversation forward through a medium such as food is so real and it extends into so many different kind of sectors of our life. It's, it's a, it's a mentality that we had building and people people were asking well, what is this thing I don't what does it do it's a little bit taboo it's a little bit scary if we could put it on a menu and move the conversation forward and start normalizing the conversation like normalizing it um all of a sudden you know the conversation changes so I, I admire what you're doing um in in terms of moving the climate conversation forward through your your properties um what do you, I mean, you mentioned like the misconceptions and the confusion, right? It's, it's, it can be pretty daunting. I mean, what do you think the biggest misconceptions around, you know, carbon neutrality or, you know, <laughs> I, I feel like we're talking about such a broad, you know, kind of subject that it's hard to get more granular, but what are some big misconceptions that you think people should know about? Yeah, I think it starts, it starts with a conversation about, you know, what should our ethical commitment be to not externalize our waste and the cost of our carbon onto the most, you know, vulnerable people uh, in the world and the unborn? You know, what, what should that obligation be, if any, to do something that's not the cheapest and most convenient thing for us as individuals or for our businesses? Um, aside from kind of like what, what looks good on paper or what, what might be trending in the moment, like when you wake up, you know, and, and look in the mirror, um, you become an entrepreneur, not just to, you know, get rich, but because you, you know, you have something to say and, and how do you, how do you identify uh, with that commitment? And, and I think, you know, once you answer that question and everybody has to answer it, you know, for themselves, um, what can you do? Uh, you can be carbon neutral or, you know, uh, net zero emissions, um, and people will say, well, what does that mean? Why don't you just not create carbon with your business? And so this is the first kind of big misconception that uh, we, we like talking about. 80% um, of the uh, carbon emissions from our business are, are caused by the farms where we buy food from. And then the question is, why don't you just buy organic? And the answer is, well, you know, frequently organic farms have higher, sometimes uh, carbon emissions. It's something that needs to be dealt with separately with its own regenerative program. And, um, you know, it, it's not like you can just say organic and ergo it's it's sustainable. So, uh, or, or buy local and buy seasonal and, and the job is just done for you. And 
So then that starts a conversation about the difference between scope one, two, and three emissions, and we're scope three, um, net neutral and now net negative, where you're covering the entire upstream um, carbon and downstream carbon impact of your business. It's really easy to be scope one neutral because it just means that you're buying renewable power, which is a great start. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously if you're an oil company, you can be scope one carbon neutral and just be buying renewable power or buying offsets for your electric bill. You're not really uh, accounting for your full debt to, to society, unless you think about scope three and then it's in the trillions of dollars and, and it's, it's not workable. Right. So I think just pushing that conversation, what is it that, that we mean when we talk about um, wanting to offset and sequester to basically compensate for the carbon footprint of our suppliers. Um, I think that that's, that's the thing that I enjoy talking about the most because then people are like, oh, wow, it's like the entire economy needs to be decarbonized. And you guys are buying offsets, not because it's cheaper than buying renewable power, but because you want to actually clean up and take responsibility for everything that is caused by the existence of your business, which I think is a good place to start, you know, when you're yeah. setting a carbon budget. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, <clears throat> and it's, it's like simply investing in scope one is a lot more economical, right. Than, than scope three yet much smaller. Sometimes it gets the same stamp of approval. And I think then it gets into like greenwashing territory. But I mean, can you just very quickly define what scope one, two, and three is? Yeah, as far as I understand, and I'm not a huge expert on this, but scope one is basically um, the energy costs. I believe scope two uh, is kind of electricity and heat. Um, and uh, I'm certain that scope three is um, all of the above and the upstream and downstream uh, carbon costs. So, you know, for scope three, it would be, um, like I said, uh, the carbon outputs of the farms that we're buying from, you know, the transport uh, from the farms uh, to the restaurant, and then any kind of um, end of life cycle carbon outputs from our trash, um, having needing things to be carted away, and obviously contained within that is the operational uh, carbon caused by the restaurant. Um, th this is something that we've been talking a lot about in um, the program that I'm in, which is more based on uh, buildings than it is about food. But but similarly, you know, when it when it comes to building, um, that's the other area where they're not making a lot of progress because cement and concrete is so carbon intensive. There's been a lot of focus on carbon neutral of the building as it's in operation in that, okay, their electricity comes from solar, but sometimes 80% of the carbon cost of that building is its uh, embodied carbon, what it took to actually raise it uh, with all the steel, all the cement, and then the end of life cycle projection on the carbon. And you need to account for the entire budget of your building, not just like, oh, I like went to Con Ed and I signed up for, you know, renewable power, that's a great start. But when these companies are creating like carbon neutral headquarters, it's important to, you know, actually make sure that they, it's not some like insane concrete and steel facade, but that it's actually 
built with like cross laminated timber or something that banks right. carbon as opposed to uh, emits, you know, millions of tons. So. So, I mean, where do you, so it's an interesting, it, it, it's really interesting to me because we are so entrenched in fossil fuels, right? We're so deep <laughs> in the consumption and reliance on fossil fuels that, you know, that to me is undeniably the biggest thing that we need to change, right? Like in theory, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, we could continue to create single use plastics and completely eliminate our consumption of fossil fuels, you know, burning of fossil fuels and probably be okay. But if we don't, if we eliminate single use plastics, but we continue burning fossil fuels in the way that we are to, you know, heat our buildings, to make the concrete, to make the glass, to, you know, to, to fuel our engines, et cetera, like we're, we're kind of, we're kind of out of luck, right? Um, yeah. Um, what, one of the one of the downsides of being in this master's program is you, you got to see the current data, and um, you know, in short, everything possible needs to be done over the next nine years to uh, potentially avoid the uh, abrupt and irreversible tipping point. Um, kind of <laughs> spiral. Uh, on, a, on a bright note, um, so I, I guess I, I don't know. I, really, I feel like we can go down a rabbit hole there. I, I mean, let's let's bring it back to food. In that, sure. one of the issues that I have always found, or, or tentative issues that I found, is just around the true cost of food. Right? Like we can buy a tomato at the grocery store for ninety nine cents a pound, but there's no way in hell that that tomato grown in Florida, grown in the winter, grown in sand, transported from Florida to New York should be costing 99 cents. So like if we're saying, what is the system, the food, the food system and why is it so messed up? Like, can, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Like, is it just simply the subsidies? How do we get companies to take more responsibility and ownership around the cost of the food in which uh, the food that's being produced? Yeah, it, it, it's just my opinion that um, all the wrong things are uh, incentivized, which is to say maximum production uh, as, as cheap as possible. You know, historically, income uh, on food, um, so, sorry, spend on food as a percentage of disposable income was, was much more similar to, you know, a country like uh, Japan or, or, or Europe or, or other wealthy nations, it, it was much more in the like 15, 20, 25% range. It was a really significant expense. And now in the United States, that hangs between six and 9%. So um, we are spending far, far too little of our disposable income on food. And But if you look at uh, a graph of what we spend on healthcare compared to all of those countries, uh, it's you know, just going right there. Uh, so this isn't a point that gets as much play as it should, in, in my opinion. Um, and the Britain's right in between, you know, so Britain maybe spends like 10% and has the second most expensive healthcare system. So in my opinion, the thing to be subsidizing is not uh, the manufacture of uh, industrial 
food products, um, but um, actual uh, social support for people who need it. And um, then if food was a little bit more expensive um, or if we were subsidizing the regenerative producers, it wouldn't be this um, society-wide uh, issue. Now, if you doubled the price of food in this country, um, there's so much poverty. And uh, so if you just remove the subsidies without kind of putting them to support people in other ways, it would be like maybe a revolution, right? Like people would go hungry and obviously right. wouldn't stand for that. Um, but there needs to be some kind of reapportionment of, of that budget. And, you know, as far as like why the, as far as why the farm bill is written the way it is, nobody knows, you know, it's just this thing that happens every five years um, where the, com the companies that are used to getting the subsidy are very, very good at lobbying for it. And um, it creates a lot of distortions and, you know, who could be against cheaper food? Um, but the fact is that cheaper food is positively correlated with higher income inequality and more poverty and kind of keeping people in poverty and keeping people sick and in poverty. And, and, and so um, there's a lot of other countries that tried it different ways that are, that are doing a lot better and they're spending more money on food. So I, I couldn't agree with you more that the expectation that you should be able to feed yourself for 99 cents is a huge part of the problem. What are some of the countries that are doing it well and what are they doing different? Literally any other country <laughs> has like spends more on food and less on healthcare. So well, let's any talk other about like, I don't know, I, I would assume like the Nordic countries are probably doing well, well right? They're like, they're all... <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, yes, they are. They always do well. And, um, you know, despite having like an impossible climate to grow food in and, um, uh but um well, yeah like a textbook example right is there like a case study of hey here's here's a model that works um so yeah I, I i think you could pick any any country in, in western europe and say here is uh, a social safety net that um basically uh leaves people with more money left over to buy food. It, it, it's kind of a dumb way of, of putting it, but like there's a lot of people that don't have more than 6% of a budget left mm -hmm. to spend money on food in this country because some of it, so much of it is going to uh, sky high rents and uh, a trip to the hospital that wasn't covered and, you know, all of these other, other things or, or maybe just insurance, right? Um, right. So... I, I think, I, I don't know how, to, how you go from where we are now and kind of like roll back the clock on inequality going up and up and up and food getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and healthcare getting more and more and more expensive. I'm sure, I'm sure there are people in the current administration who are thinking about this, I yeah. hope. Um, but yeah, I think to the point of it is, is food, we can't expect good food to be... Um, super cheap. And right. uh, I would also say from a sustainability perspective, it cannot be a human right that red meat is super cheap. It's just, mm. it externalizes the, the costs that we're externalizing there, which will be paid by somebody um, and will make everybody poorer in the future. Mm. 
are incredibly high. And um, that is, were there every, ever a luxury food item, it's, it's a steak. And that's a highly emotional issue for people that, um, you know, grew up uh, with, a, with a subsidized industrial food system where the costs were kind of hidden from them on, on multiple levels in their healthcare, in the future cost of carbon cleanup. And then it's like, okay, the steak is, is gonna be a little bit more expensive because we passed this carbon tax and then you're having a conversation about taking away people's hamburgers. Right. And um, it's, that's a really effective line of argument yeah. for people that want to resist uh, any type of responsible regulation around climate. Because um, it's seen as a human right, no matter how much it hurts uh, other people. And I, I, I just say, like, just count the cost, you know, like of making a, a burger a dollar cheaper today, like what that's going to cost in the future. Um, and uh, then, then just make an informed decision about whether you still feel good demanding that it be subsidized at the level that it is now. Because I think people just don't know how expensive it's gonna to be to clean up. And that money is gonna pull at every other social priority that, that everyone cares about when, when it needs to be spent and it'll be in our lifetimes. So, so can we, let's focus in just on, because I know that you know a lot of your restaurants are vegetarian or, you know, really lean, lean into responsible sourcing and don't necessarily highlight, right? I'm not going to find like a 64 ounce, uh, you know, tomahawk or whatever on your, on your menu at Fedora. Um, let's go through, can we go through just the cost of like that, of that hamburger? Cause you're mentioning the externalized costs and whatnot. And I think it's just important to kind of paint the picture from the soybeans that are being grown to, you know, the, the maybe the healthcare costs or implications on the other end. Sure. I mean, so the costs of like industrialized, uh, you know, cattle are far, far greater and they involve a lot of uh, carbon inputs in the form of, in the form of like, you know, pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, these have other catastrophic effects on the environment. But if we're just talking about like, farming with cattle the right way um, and the costs that that, you know, still has on the environment. Um, there's a lot of controversial uh, information out there about um, whether you can uh, mob graze in a way that's, that's carbon negative, that is really um, beyond me. Um, but I think, I think the assumption is that it takes like many, many, many calories to create a calorie, calorie of beef. Um, I forget how many hundred, but it's a lot. Uh, how many thousands of gallons of water um, per calorie, maybe like a thousand gallons of water. Uh, and of course the emissions that everybody's familiar with from uh, the methane, which is, you know, depending on what time horizon you're using, um, 30 to 80 times uh, more impactful than carbon um, for the environment. And um, then of course, uh, you know, every time there's an increase in demand for beef worldwide, which happens every year, um, that's another, you know, million acres of rainforest gone um, so that ranchers can uh, create pasture to um, raise their cattle. And that is by far the most catastrophic uh, part of all of it is the fact that demand for that product um, is, uh, you know, basically creates deforestation. Yeah, um, it's 
it's like no matter what way you cut it there's well first off totally agree that red meat is like no good <laughs> probably just stop we should probably stop eating red meat i mean well we know it's not probably we know we should be but it's interesting because when we talk about like the deforestation and stuff I, you know the idea that we can i'm reading i'm currently reading nice avoid climate disaster yeah. right and a point that Mr. Gates makes is like, well, if you're going to plant the trees in, you know, in the Amazon, you're then creating another opportunity for a farmer to cut down more trees to plant the soybeans that they need to then feed the cows to then feed the humans. It's just like, it's just a really bad cycle that we get into. So if there were three things that you could share with me and people who are listening, that would stun. <laughs> I want to be. I want to be shocked. I want to be. I want to be shocked into into action. Shocked into action. Yeah. What would those three things be? Uh, I think first is that um, there's three billion people moving to cities over the next thirty years, and uh, in order to house everybody, um, there's going to be more construction in those 30 years, more square feet of construction than in all of human history to this point. Um, and uh, we do not have technology coming on board before 2050 to lower the carbon emissions of cement. Um, and so that alone, if everything else was following the most ambitious uh, targets, which were not, um, uh, creates uh, kind of an unsustainable uh, carbon load on on wow. on the planet so there's three billion people moving to cities in the next how many years 30 well, some of it is people moving from the countries to cities some of it is new people being born um this is you know basically the, the focus of my program is is that um there's going this building is going to happen you can't ask people to live you know in in slums um as as a human rights issue um, how can this building happen in a way that doesn't send the world into uh, a spiral above, you know, two, three, five degrees centigrade? What is a path? Um, what, let alone a likely path? What is any path to to support that? The other thing that I would say is that meat consumption is expected to raise by to rise by fifty percent across the world between now and uh, the future because. Um, there's more people, they have more money, they want more meat, uh, people want to lead kind of a more affluent uh, status driven life as as they get more money and more people are pulled out of out of poverty. Um, and I guess the last thing that I would say that I find just like ever shocking is if we had started to draw down carbon in the 90s, um, we'd only need to draw down by, you know, two and a half percent a year um, to get to where we need to be by 2030. But given that we're starting in, you know, 2021, uh, it needs to be 10% a year. Um, and if we don't really get going until 2025, it needs to be like 20% a year, which is just not going to happen. So, um, and I'll add a last one, uh, which I find very shocking. Um, every time we push a deadline into the future, um, not only does the cost of mitigating the carbon get more expensive, but there's uh, kind of a side parallel cost of creating climate resilience. 
And so the world gets together. They're like, we're going to get serious. And uh, at the next climate conference, and they're like, we pledged $200 billion toward uh, averting climate change. And you think that that's all going to go into solar fields and, um, you know, uh, plant-based foods and uh, buying everybody, you know, an electric car. And what is happening is the countries around the world are saying, hey, uh, this is about to be flooded. Um, Our entire infrastructure um, for 20 million people, we need 50 billion of that just to survive. And by the way, it's your fault that this is happening and it is. Um, And so then the countries are like, oh, well, we're gonna need like a trillion dollars to actually meet all of the climate mitigation targets because all the money that we thought we needed is now just needed for climate resilience. Now we're just building seawalls around New York. And this is the thing that pissed me off so much when New York City canceled, delayed its compost program to save like $20 million and then simultaneously announced that they're spending $20 billion to create a seawall. Because that's the attitude that everybody has about climate change is like, let's spend money basically not eliminating our own emissions, which are affecting everybody, but basically protecting ourselves against the uh, inevitable, um, you know, rising of the seas. And there's only so much money and the amount of money that's needed for resilience and adaptation is taking up a larger and larger amount of the pie when there needs to be like way more money going toward investment in avoiding the collapse, not just kind of like handling it. So that's, that's kind of my wow. concern. Is that's it the so politics cool. of that or nightmarish? That's so interesting. I never thought of that, right? Like the parallel of <clears throat> building the wall, like hundred dollars, we, we have a hundred dollars, but we need to put it into the immediate kind of, uh, it, it's, it's kind of human nature. It's like, right. I need to take care of this thing. That's like right in front of me versus do a little work internally to help maybe prevent it in the future. Yeah, you, you have a building that's on fire with people inside it, and slowly the two buildings next to it are also being catching on fire. And you have like a firefighter. And the obvious answer to that is like, what a hellish problem. Let's get more firefighters, to which I would say hamburgers should be more expensive. Like if, if you want there to there to be money to basically cover both somebody has to really all of us need to contribute more to the cost of that mitigation but if we don't it's going to get the the expenses increase uh hyperbolically and i'm just talking about the cash expenses i'm not talking about the expense of like losing biodiversity and losing our coastlines and you know uh living in a hellish world i'm just saying like we'll have less money you know but like the actual cost will be, you know, far, far greater. So it's really just like everybody needs to do whatever they can in the moment to um, push faster because there's still this sense. It's like, okay, it's going to cost this much for the Green New Deal. And someone says seriously, they're like, well, that's going to cost like, you know, uh, that, that that's going to cost. It, it's not cheaper to do that. Or... Um, they say, uh, and this is, this is the kind of like resilience in our own country. They're like, well, closing the coal mine is going to cost, you know, 200 jobs. Um, and the argument is always, 
oh, well, there's going to be more green jobs. Maybe there's not going to be more green jobs. You know, sometimes it's, it's not always better to make the sustainable choice in every single level of analysis. Sometimes there are real costs and sometimes they're human. And the question is like, can we actually have a vocabulary for talking about the human cost of staying on the current path? Or is everybody so terrified of that that we can't actually run a rational cost-benefit analysis? Because I guarantee you, like those coal miners that want to keep their jobs do not want to be the reason that, you know, what could happen could happen. Like no, nobody, nobody alive is that self-involved. Um, it's just that it hasn't been articulated. So I think just focusing on communication, pushing conversations, um, you know, and uh, just just trying to do every, everything you can. And, and it's an exciting, it's an exciting thing to work on because it's very consequential. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, I think like one of the things that that I, I'm just curious about is like you, it feels like we're having the wrong, so many people are having the wrong conversations, right? We're looking up to the wrong ideals because if meat consumption is going to increase by 50% in the coming years, we are not having the right conversations. That is like such an obvious shift, but where people look up to meat consumption as they look up to meat consumption, right? Instead of looking down upon meat consumption. And I think that so much of the opportunity we have when it comes to moving the needle forward can, can be like, we, we, can, we can do a lot with food, right? And restaurants are an extraordinary communication tool to move human behavior. And I feel like that's what you're doing. I think that the question is like, how do we get more people on board, right? Like how, how do we get people to, to say, oh my God, like meat consumption needs to go down in the next 50 years versus, or you know, it needs to go down 50% in the next year versus up. I mean, for, for me, the answer comes back to building positive climate self-esteem, right? Like, yes, it's a terrible responsibility. This idea that your consumption in the present could, you know, hurt people in the mm -hmm. future. Um, or the president. Uh, however, you know, uh, agency doesn't have to feel bad if you know what to do. Um, making choices that you can feel good about. Um, I mean, there's an incredible, yeah, there's a responsibility, there's a terror, there's an anguish, but, but if you actually have a path, this idea that every single consumer decision you make in your life, you're actually voting on the most important issue that we're facing as its generations, that's awesome to be able to key directly into that and feel like you have a voice in um, this incredible shift toward sustainability. It's just like, how do you have a conversation with someone that gets detailed enough that they actually come away with it uh, feeling good, you know, right. feeling good about climate change, feeling like, oh, I've been like ignorant of this whole thing and like, a low-grade anxiety around it my entire life. And now I can hang in a conversation for a few minutes where I know what to do. And I think that's our role as, you know, uh, quote unquote, sustainable businesses that are trying to help people make this transition into, you know, from a, an attitude of like feeling terrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, first it's denial, then you see what's going on and you feel terrible. And like, mm -hmm. uh, and then it's feeling like, 
oh, this is actually the only geopolitical issue in which I have a ton of agency. I have nothing to say about nuclear proliferation, nothing to say about human trafficking. Everything I do affects my carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. And, and climate change is nothing other than the sum of everybody's individual decisions around their carbon footprint and, and kind of just owning that responsibility. It, it, you, you can get to a point where it actually starts to be a, a source of um, self-esteem and, and pride and not just uh, negative reinforcement and confusion and shame. Um, so yeah. I think it's, we decode that a little bit in the beginning and then everybody will figure it out for themselves, you know, but you just give them like one taste of like, and I think people had that with the straws, right? Like why right. is everybody talking so much about straws? Cause it's something that's easy to give up and that it makes right. you feel good about doing it. Totally. It's kind of like what, what you're saying almost feels like we need to build climate literacy, right? We totally. need to I learn so. how to read situations and read decisions and make the decisions that move the needle forward. Like I'm going to remember that little phrase because I think climate literacy is like what I'm kind of taking away from this. So if, if, well, I'm taking away more than that, but you know what I mean? The, so if, go ahead. I was going to say one other thing, like think about other issues where people get stuck, right? Like financial literacy, it sucks to be intimidated uh, and, and feel overwhelmed and like um, being terrified of, of, of your taxes. But over time, it's an area where people can build up if they're given the right tools and the right language, right. Um, uh, positive self-esteem there that like has a healthy effect on their life, being able to control their health, being able to control their weight, right? It starts with understanding what a calorie is, right? What is the equivalent for carbon footprint? Well, mm-hmm. it's a metric ton per year. But like nobody really has any like way of relating to that, understanding how many cars that is per year taken off the road, how many trees that would be planted. Right. I think in the next few years, people are going to be able to, you know, convert their carbon footprint into something that is a complete meaningless abstraction to something that they actually track as they would uh, any any other important thing that they want to measure and manage in their life. And, and that's that's kind of like the big picture of what we focus on right. is like, how do you help people measure and manage their impact and therefore feel good about it? And then those good feelings translate into positive action. Yeah, no, I to- I couldn't agree more. And I think that understand it, like there's so much sort of jargon, right? Around these things that just don't make, what is a giga, what is a gigaton of, of carbon, right? What is a, a megaton? Like, what do these things mean? And sure, we can plant trees, we can do this, we can do that. But how is it, what does it actually mean in relationship to the whole? Because I was reading, right, the straws, sure, makes, gives you agency, makes you feel like you're in control. It's a, what, 0.0003% contribution to the plastics that are being made, which is like, you know, a subset. Anyways, we digress. But I think one of the things I wanted to ask of you is, okay, I am a newbie, a, a, a new person interested in this conversation, what are the five things that I can do on a daily basis? Or maybe I can ask you directly, what are the five things that you do on a daily basis where you find yourself making that decision, right? Like, oh, I go to the coffee shop and instead I always bring my own mug or like, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, the things that, that uh, in no particular order, um, what you eat uh, and understanding, you know, the different uh, 
rough carbon footprint of a cow versus a chicken versus like, you know, kale or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, questions about transportation. Uh, did you take a bike? Did you take a car? A question that New Yorkers ask themselves a lot. Um, am I going to take a taxi or a subway? That's a conversation that's about time and money. Um, zero times in my life has anybody ever said, well, you know, the uh, carbon footprint of the Uber is this and the carbon footprint of the train is this. Nobody knows. Is it like a thousand times as bad? Is it 10 times as bad? Um, the train's running anyway, right? So, so consider taking the subway. Uh, buying something in person as opposed to ordering something online. Um, and I, I would just say more than anything, just make an effort to try to understand what your carbon footprint is. Like there's a lot of great tools and, you know, we happen to be working on one, but th- there's some amazing stuff online um, where you can say, hey, like, here's some facts about my life. Here's how big my apartment is. Here's how often I fly. Um, do I own a car? Do I have kids? And and you can get a sense of what your carbon footprint is. Is it 25 uh tons per year is is it 55 uh and then you can set some goals like you would set goals in any other part of your life like you know about how much money you want to make or or whatever it is that's important to you um and then then once you're on that path where you understand where you are and you you understand where you want to go um you know maybe maybe you're at like 25 tons and you're like, I think that the United States should, you know, I want to make sure that we comply with Paris. You comply with Paris. You lower your emissions, like, you know, 28%, right? It's totally doable. Uh, but it, it, it kind of sucks. Like if, if you have to give up certain things that, that you care about. Um, and then uh, if you don't want to give up certain things that you care about, um, make sure that you at least invest in sequestration in the form of offsetting uh, so that you are not externalizing the costs of your consumption onto people you don't know. Um, and that's, that's also doable. Like you can uh, invest in preserving acres of rainforest or um, a million different things uh, to um, try to try to bring your impact on the world down if you're struggling to figure out how to co- control your own consumption. Everybody finds their own path to to taking responsibility. Um, but the, the point is it's not free and it shouldn't be, your your costs shouldn't be passed on to somebody else just because we don't know how to measure them. And as a society, we don't put a value on them. It doesn't make it right that we're kicking that can not that far down the road. It, it's definitely gonna come up in our lifetimes um, where somebody, the generation is gonna be like, seriously, like, like the, the taxes that are gonna be required to pay for that carbon cleanup are gonna be Hi. So, yeah. You want to look back at this moment and be like, as of 2021, I was like neutral or something like that, that you at least made an effort to look up what your individual contribution to the collective problem was. That's that I think is a first step. And I think that can be an incredibly empowering um, exercise for people. If a little bit painful at first, you know? Yeah. It's like stepping on the scale. Yeah. Or, or like checking your bank account when you're overdrawn. It sucks. Really? Like it's the only way through. Right. It's yeah, it's like looking in the mirror, really, right? It's it's yeah. like objectively looking at the situation and making a decision to change it. And I think once we begin changing it, 
it's an upward cycle of empowerment, right? We feel empowered, we feel excited, we feel energized, and we have the opportunity to share that. And the more people that we share it with, the more people that we educate, the more we educate ourselves, the more we can actually move the needle and, and, and um, hopefully kind of right the wrongs um, before it's absolutely too late. But I almost say, hate saying that because I feel like we're already into too late territory. So I think we're into too late probabilities. There's already like a 20% probability that it's too late. You know, even if we, even if everybody tried to do everything that they could. Um, But, you know, I I don't think we're into too late certainty and like, you know, what the hell, as long as there's a chance to to make it less bad, you don't have to do everything that you can do. We have to find like a a meaning, you know, being this generation that's going to be, uh, you know, the cause and witness and hopefully stopping some of, some of the worst effects. Um, so, and, and I, and I honestly think like there's, there's no drama about whether or not climate change is going to become more of a thing that people are thinking about. It's certainly happening. Yeah. It's, it's the least, uh, it, it's, there, there's no, that that's a hundred percent. So the sooner you kind of get with it and really understand it and get to know it, it'll 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 be meaningful for you throughout your entire life that that you kind of stood up and were doing more than everybody else was um at a moment where it's not anything it went when it wasn't everything that people are talking about all the time and that you're not just bullshitting about it you know you're not greenwashing as an individual you're not just virtue signal signaling on social media that you actually have some substance um it'll feel good it'll feel terrible to not do that so I think more and more there's the rewards, there's personal rewards as well, aside from the fact it's just the right thing to do. Henry, thank you so much for imparting so much wisdom. Um, I, hope, I, hope, I hope some of it's coherent. I think it's uh, all very coherent. It's a big topic. Um, so yeah, it's a big topic. I, I, I feel like we could have you know a few more follow-ups. Um, but Henry, thank you so much. Uh, is there a, a place that you'd like to direct people to find more about your you and your work? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, our group uh, website is um, uh, theoberon.co. That's uh, T-H-E-O-B-E-R-O-N. Um, and uh, yeah, it's um, if anybody, I don't know if anybody watching this has any questions about our work or, or things um, about they're interested in kind of getting involved uh, in these different initiatives. Um, we have a lot of different things we're trying to do in Brooklyn and in the Catskills and um, in the in the greater world of um, uh, advocacy around uh, individuals taking responsibility for their carbon footprints. So uh, yeah, just uh, feel free to, to contact me through, through the website. And um, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. It's um, it's great that, that you're doing this game, so. Thank you, Henry. I really appreciate it. And um, as always, value your time very much. <laughs> cool, talk soon. Bye.